Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. Ten minutes after one, good afternoon to you. It's a Tuesday edition of Life Happens and we go indigenous on a Tuesday. Um, Lovedale Press is on the verge of closure. We're going to be speaking to them um, just after 2.30 and, and how we can assist and why they find themselves where they are right now. This is an important story, so I, I do implore you to stay around so that we can then get to the bottom of that. They've been trying to get to uh, some sort of assistance for a while now, so we we have to then you know put our heads together and see how we can sort it out and we'll also obviously look at their history as well all right and then um at two we we're going to discuss in our family conversation we're going to discuss marriage why get married when it is the right time to get married and why not to get married? So that's a, a conversation that's going to happen at two o'clock. And so we kick it off. We kick it off today with the history of slavery in South Africa. My guest is Professor Nigel Penn, Professor at the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town. Good afternoon to you, Prof. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us under all these circumstances. Thank you very much. I, I should just warn you and your listeners that I'm sitting at home underneath the flight path of helicopters mm. that are water bombing uh, Table Mountain because mm. I live in Friedrichhoek and the fire is still burning there. Mm-hmm. So every now and then you might hear a helicopter going overhead, but we'll try to push on through. We really do appreciate you making the time. In fact, we weren't sure that you're going to be able to, to make time. H- how has this affected you personally, Prof? Yeah, well, it's um, very stressful. And uh, for historians and those who study African history, Mm -hmm. the African Studies Library room really was the the heart of the university. Mm -hmm. It was like a a cathedral of knowledge and a a safe haven. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely devastating that it's been destroyed. Um, So we're still still reeling from the shock and Mm -hmm. waiting for an assessment of the damage. Mm -hmm. But it it has been one of the most depressing days Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I, I dare say I think many share the sentiments as well uh, that we really are heartbroken by what we've been seeing. Um, And yes, you're absolutely right. African Studies Library has really, I think, broken our hearts tremendously. We're hearing some, you know, some reports that not maybe not all of it is completely gutted. We we really are waiting in anticipation to hear what has been saved. Yes, we all are, yeah. yeah. Okay, so Prof, we are looking at the history of slavery in South Africa. And in fact, when I had a conversation with uh, a few people, um, some were sort of saying, really, I didn't really know that there was slavery here. Well, <laughs> yes, there was slavery in South Africa. And um, it it arrived in, in what, was it the 1600s? Well, um, yes, slavery essentially arrived with the Dutch East Indies Company that arrived at the Cape in 1652. Um, and slavery really took off then in 1658 when the first boatloads of, of captives began arriving. And um, so slavery was very, very much part and parcel of the early Cape Colony. Mm-hmm. In fact, throughout the history of the colony, from 1658, you might say, till the abolition of slavery in 1834, there were actually more slaves than there were free people at the Cape. Um, So this was a slave society. 
where the majority of people were slaves and the economy was run by slave labor. Mm. Let's talk about exactly how that that you know became the issue. So the Dutch East Indian Company arrives. Yeah. Um, they they want to do you know they want to pick up some stuff, um, and then they realize that you know to do some of the work they they need labor. Yes. Initially, it wasn't always hostile, or was it? Well, you see, the indigenous people of the Cape, uh, the Khoi San, and more particularly around Table Mountain, the Khoi Khoi, the indigenous people were seen by the the company, and you must remember that this was a like a business company, mm. Mm. The, the Dutch East Indies Company or the VOC. The indigenous people were seen as essential for the supply of cattle and sheep. Mm. They saw them as suppliers of, of meat. And the company instructions were don't interfere with the koi too much because you'll disrupt the supply mm. of meat. And although Van Riebeck, who was the first commander of the VOC station at the Cape, although he was keen to enslave the koi, his orders were exactly that he must not do so. And, and this is one of the things which some South Africans find a bit hard to, to accept. Actually, the slaves that were enslaved at the Cape were all exotic imports. Mm-hmm. They weren't indigenous people. Mm. And, and the Khoi were never enslaved. That's not to say the Khoi weren't forced to work mm-hmm. and treated very badly. Mm-hmm. In fact, the Khoi were often treated worse than slaves. But as indigenous people, the instructions were don't enslave them for, for the practicality of the meat uh, trade but also because it was considered um, not that clever to enslave the people amongst whom you were settling because you would sort of enrage them, they mm-hmm. would escape easily, they would resist easily, whereas somebody who's come from a foreign land, uprooted or deracinated from their natal country, that person is vulnerable, has got no, no connections, the only life that they can have is now to be integrated into the colonial settler economy as, as slaves. So they're vulnerable. They even get new names. Um, they don't. Ha- they have to learn a new language, etc., etc. So they are they are better enslavable material mm-hmm. than indigenous people with natal rights. So, so let's just define quickly the people that were enslaved. Those were the Malays, Indonesia people from Indonesia, from India. Am I right in in that definition? Yes, you're you're right. The the slaves from in South Africa came from all of the shores and societies of the Indian Ocean world. And roughly, because this is the area that the Dutch East India Company operates mm-hmm. in the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. and so roughly about a third came from the Indonesian archipelago and Southeast Asia. That includes some of the south coast of India and what is uh, today Sri Lanka. So about a third came from Southeast Asia and Indonesia, one third from the huge island of Madagascar and one third from probably the coasts of Mozambique or East Africa. Mm-hmm. And, and how did the slaves then interact with the indigenous people? Um, all right. Um, this, uh, that's an interesting question. There were far more male slaves than female slaves, about, you know, about four or five men to every uh, one woman um, and that was because the Dutch were under the mistaken belief that men actually made better agricultural laborers than women. They, they, they thought men were better at hard mm. labor than women. Mm. And of course, if they had looked around them, 
they would have seen that wasn't true. But anyway, you had this very um, that sort of male-dominated slave society, and there were and the slaves that arrived were very often uh, separated from each other and scattered into the hinterland of the Cape, working on farms deep in the interior. And quite often they were quite few in number. It wasn't like America or, mm. or the southern states or the West Indies where you had huge slave plantations. Here you had much smaller uh, farms, far fewer slaves on them. So they ended up uh, having to interact with the Khoi Khoi laborers or the Khoi San laborers on the farm. And we must assume that many of the, the men formed um, sexual relationships or family uh, bonds with, with coy women. Um, but most of the women, I venture to say, were not sent out to far-lying farms. Many of the women became domestic workers or well, slaves in, in, in Cape Town itself, mm. in, in, the, in the regions around Cape Town. And, and there they worked in the in the kitchen or mm. uh, domestic service, etc. Let me ask Prof that we take a quick break. Your line is not great, so I'm going to try and see if we can sort it out. And then I'm right. going to ask also that we take some calls on 011-714-2006. Any questions you have around slavery in South Africa? I'm also going to take WhatsApp notes on 0614-104. And at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. Professor Nigel Penn is a professor at the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town. We're discussing the history of slavery in South Africa. Thank you so much for staying with us, Prof. So the Dutch have slaves that they've brought with them. They need supplies. Then they disperse them around parts of the Cape and some a little bit more inland. But that suddenly, you know, they realize it's it's not enough. They They need more labor. To supply these sh- these ships that are that are there to dock and and get more supplies, yes. was that what was the reason behind enslaving the locals? They let's let's just get this clear. They did not enslave the locals. They weren't mm. allowed to do so. Mm-hmm. There, there was no market in indigenous people. Mm-hmm. What did what did happen was that they um, forced the koi koi to work for them. Labor. The koi koi were uh. actually cheaper than slaves. A slave costs a lot of money, whereas koi koi later could be had simply for costs in clearer, you know, food and clothing. So, so, so koi labor was very cheap. So can I ask you a slightly yes. technical question when we speak yes. about the labor of the koi being cheap? Yes. And, and, and this may be a very sensitive thing. So who was being paid for that labor? And who is benefiting from it? Yes. So who was well, trading the koi um, with the Dutch? The, the, the koi were, were not being traded. Okay. Uh, they were not. They were being, the koi were being offered minimal ah, okay. wages, if, if anything at all. They were yes. being paid, as I say, food, clothing, maybe one ewe uh, or lamb a year, maybe tobacco, maybe drink. Uh, what did happen, however, was that Sometimes commanders would go out to attack the Sam, mm-hmm. and uh, child captives would be taken. Mm-hmm. And and on paper, these these child captives were were called you know, um, uh, apprentices or 
or unbookenders, people mm-hmm. whose names are written in a book as having now been apprenticed. And so, in theory, these, these people would work till age 20 or 25 for the Dutch farmers, but in theory, they weren't slaves. Okay, which, which helps me, because what it then means is that there wasn't a slave trade happening. It was just, no. you know, um, labor that was, that was cheap labor. Exactly, because uh, the, the slave, all the slaves were in coming into the Cape were were imported mm-hmm. from from the Indian Ocean world, and so in that sense there was a trade. Mm-hmm. But there was no export okay. of slaves out of South Africa, which I know some people believe that that the South African uh, Dutch colonists were somehow enslaving locals and exporting them, mm-hmm. and that never happened. Hmm. Okay, let's take some calls. Um, Majosi is calling from Strandfontein. Uh, hi. Hi, Majosi. Oh, are you from Standerton? Hi, Majosi. Yes. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for calling. I just have a question for the prof there. Yes. My question is, what is it about Europeans and enslaving other nations and other yes. races? Because when you check the history of slavery, is the European at the forefront? I just want to understand from the forefront what is the what was the drive behind enslaving other nations? What did they what did they gain by yes. doing that to other nations? Well, this this is a very uh, good question, a very interesting question. I think the important one, the first point to make is that slavery has existed throughout history, and all nations have been guilty of enslaving other nations or have been victims of having been enslaved themselves. So slavery is sort of a, a fact of life. In fact, the, the very word in the English language, slave, comes from the word Slav. And you know, the Slav people from East Europe, they were very frequently enslaved in, in the old days. But the institution of slavery was slowly dying out from the Middle Ages onwards in, in Europe. But as Europe expanded into the colonial realm, uh, those Europeans founding colonies and settlements and so on thought it would be um, a very good idea to reinstitute uh, slavery, not in their home countries so much, but in their new colonies. And of course, what your what your question is getting at is that there is a degree of, of racism in this, that Europeans thought it was maybe appropriate to enslave people of, of another race, but perhaps not appropriate to enslave um, themselves or other Europeans. Um, I so, don't know if that answers your question. It does a little, but do we have a history of slavery pre-colonial time? Yes. Well, you, Josie, you did, have... you hear, did you hear what the prof said, or did you miss some of it? No, I heard. I heard everything he said. But yeah. I just want to ask this last, last question. Is there a history of slavery before the arrival of Ujan Van Ribi? Which is what he was saying. Yes, yes, uh, yes there is. And, if you're in, and in Africa... No, no yes. specifically in Africa. Yes. You know, African societies did um, enslave each other. Um, and sometimes for export, for instance, slaves were exported across the Sahara Desert to the Islamic world, across the Indian Ocean, also to Arabia and countries like that. But sometimes two African societies enslaved each other in what is called sort of domestic slavery. Captives were taken in warfare. People were exchanged for debt, 
for outstanding debts that couldn't be paid, uh, people of low status and, and uh, criminal uh, caste were sometimes enslaved. But the thing about these uh, domestic slaves in Africa, they were often integrated into the family structures mm-hmm. of the African societies. They were, um, in a sense, they had a chance a long way down the line to become part and parcel of the societies that had enslaved them. They weren't going to be permanently mm-hmm. um sort of discriminated against. There was a chance for freedom somewhere mm-hmm. down the line. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. Aisha, are you calling from Uppington? Hi. Good afternoon, Pamela, and good afternoon to the professor. Hello, Aisha. Pamela, to you, I listened to you last week's show on, on, on the podcast. Thank goodness for podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, to the professor, Prof, I am more angry than you about them burning down that library. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> yes, and and the, look, the other buildings didn't get burned. Just the library. You must, you you guys must make sure that you catch that criminal. Mm. Now uh, to the matter at hand. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you were talking about the commandos that 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 went out. Is that the commandos that used to hunt and kill the bushmen? That's correct. Yes. Um, now, w- w- that information, because they they used to give them permits to hunt and kill mm-hmm. the Bushmen. Mm-hmm. Now, was that information in that archive that some idiot just burnt up? Well, yes, so that's, that's, that is the case. I've written a book on, on this subject called The Forgotten Frontier, mm. which is very largely about... Uh, the period when commandos went out in the 18th century on the frontiers of the Cape, the Northern Cape, the Eastern Cape, and tried to destroy the San societies. Mm -hmm. And very often they would uh, shoot the adult males, but take captive the women and children. And by a child, basically, they meant somebody under 12. Mm -hmm. Because the thinking was that if you are younger than 12, and you'd make a good uh, future slave or servant. But if you are over 12, you're going to be a, a resistor, you're going to be too independent. And so the thinking, it was easier to maybe kill the men, uh, but the women and children would be captured and pacified. Prof, I will get your details from, from your email from Pomelo. Thank, Thank you, Aisha. Right. We'll do it. So, so, Prof, we, we then are in 1657 where we want to pick up on on the settling in yeah. the Cape and I'm going to do that in a short while after the headlines with Utzila Saku at 1.30. Right. Right, sure. You're listening to Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. Professor Nigel Penn, professor at the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town. We're discussing slavery in South Africa. I'm going to pick up with you, Prof, in a short while. Let me just go quickly to Owen, who's calling from George. Hi, Owen. Hi, um, to you and and to your guests. Hi. I have just two um, questions which I want to clarify in my mind. Mm -hmm. Before the Dutch arrived here, Mm -hmm. the Portuguese came along here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I have reason to believe that they they took some... uh, some local people with them to the east, because by the time the Dutch had arrived, um, there was translators here. So that was my first uh, question. For example, a guy like which they call Harry the Stanwooter, he was a translator, right? 
And then the other other question is that when the Dutch settled there, when the when the, when they had the farms, the Dutch didn't come with a lot of women, so they would have um, also taken the local women, and then the, those were the feather skinned uh, offsprings, where then uh, became uh, became the the next generation's wives. Is that correct? Prof, are you able to hear the question? Yes, yes, okay. I think so. Um, the first question was about the Portuguese taking maybe Cory captive to train them as translators. This, this is certainly something that all the European seafaring nations did as they passed the Cape, not just the Portuguese, but um, the English and the Dutch, the English especially. Um, the Portuguese were very wary of the Cape after about 1507, when Viceroy Dalmeida and about 50 or more of his men were killed by the Khoi at the Cape when they were trying exactly to do this, to kidnap people. They were met by force uh, where the Milneton Golf Course is today, and about 50 of them were killed by the Khoi. So after that, they gave the Cape a wide berth. But English and Dutch sailors would, uh, would pick up some of the Khoi, take them, either to the East Indies or even back to, to England. One man called Corrie was taken back to the England where he spent a year and was given a suit of armor for his um, for his reward because they thought the Koi really liked metal. Well, let's give this guy a metal suit. Um, so that is, yes, there was this class, and Altumal or, or Harry was one of them, um, and uh, Doman, who was a great resistor, Koi resistor in the early Cape Dutch Wars, he was another. So you're right about the translation. And I think your second question was, did the um, Dutch also sleep with uh, Khoi women? Was that your question? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so, yes, that's, that's, that did happen. Um, there was a shortage of uh, free women at the Cape, and so what this meant is that men, uh, free men often slept with slave women, probably um, the few slave women who were available very often ended up as sexual partners to the white men. And some of them finally married the white men. So there, there are, the, the, the descendants of slave women entered uh, the settler uh, families, if you like. Mm. The, the condition of marriage was that the slave women had to become baptized, to convert mm. to Christianity first before mm. they could marry. Uh, but about uh, about 30% of white men or colonial settlers at the Cape never married at all. And we must imagine they sometimes took coy wives or coy concubines or mistresses. And this especially happened on the frontier districts where there wasn't uh, so much inquiry in, into the person's behavior and where um, perhaps manners and morals are more relaxed especially in the Macroland, for instance. Many white farmers took boy wives, and we know that many of them took these wives as under coy marriage customs rather than Christian marriage customs. Sig is calling from Randburg. Hi, Sig. Hello. Uh, I thought it's worthwhile in response to uh, an earlier call uh, about slavery in Africa. It's, it's absolutely crucial in that context, I would have thought, to point out that Arabs were doing massive slave mm. trading hundreds of years before the, wives, uh, before the whites arrived. 
uh, that's what I understood very clearly, and uh, and 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 of course slavery, uh, as as the professor indeed said, uh, goes across all of history. And what was fascinating for me is that the Romans, who also enslaved people, uh, they have a had a lot of freedmen's. And they had actually, I believe they legislated conditions of employment for slaves to humanize the slave business. So uh, I think a lot of the people running around this country, even called freedmen, are really dating back to the Romans, perhaps, as former slaves. Professor Penn? Well, yes, well, just on your first point, just certainly the, the trans-Saharan slave trade and the Indian Ocean slave trade was... In, in the hands of um, Arabs, many of them, of, uh, servicing the Islamic world. Um, your second point about freedmen, I don't know if that's got anything to do with the Cape. Uh, the Cape Slave Society was one quite unique in, in the world, really, where freed slaves were, were very rare. Um, in other societies, like in the Brazil or the West Indies, slaves are often freed quite frequently, but at the Cape there was great reluctance to, to free slaves or even to convert slaves mm-hmm. to Christianity because the Dutch thought that it was wrong to enslave a Christian, so therefore mm-hmm. not let's not make our slaves into Christians. Mm-hmm. And, and the Dutch church also said that if um, somebody had, was going to be freed or even uh, baptized, they had to guarantee that they wouldn't become a burden on, on the community, that this church wouldn't have to pay money for their upkeep in their old age. Mm. Uh, and so if you free this, a slave, for instance, you have to guarantee that you would look after them and pay for them for as long as they live. So obviously a lot of people at the Cape were reluctant to do that. Mm. Professor Nigel Penn is a professor at the Department of Historical Studies at UCT. We're discussing slavery in South Africa. Let's have the conversation. WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. Dimela Pimelo, you know, after reading the materials of philosophers like Franz Fanon and Marcus Garvey, they opened my eyes that there are things that we are not told as much uh, as far as history is concerned, especially in the history of slaverism. There are things that are still hidden on how our fellow Africans were enslaved here in Africa and across the world. And we really need to know the truth. Unfortunately, I, I don't know how can we get the whole truth. Hi, Pamela. Very interesting discussion. I, I didn't actually know that, uh, um, you know, the South African slave trade market did not export slaves. But in 2018, I went to a place called Goree Island, you know, Hori Island off the coast of, 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 of Senegal. And, 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 and it was one of the saddest uh, trips and, and things that I've ever done. Um, but when I was there, you know, looking at, you know, various artwork uh, that, that the slaves would have done, uh, you you know before they left i mean on the cells of the legal places where they were supposed to have been kept i must tell you i 
I certainly did not feel any Southern African feel to the place, if I put it like that. So I've always just thought at the back of my mind, I don't think that even if they were taking slaves from South Africa, they would have transported them up to, 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 to Gori Island for them to depart for, for, for wherever they were going. But I, I got confirmation for, for, from the prof now. I Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. But really, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad what used to happen with slave trade. It's time in Pretoria. Thank you. Thank you for that, Tammy. Professor Nigel Penn, Professor at the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town, discussing slavery in South Africa. So, Prof, let's go to 1957, where there was a decision to, I suppose, release some some Dutch from their contracts and settle Sorry, them Sorry, did here. you say 1957? I beg your pardon. Did I say 1657? Sixteen fifty-seven. And and my question was, take yeah. us from there. The decision to settle some Dutch yes. in in the in the country and release them from their contracts. Well, this this created a class of um, so-called free burghers, mm-hmm. and and they of course had a need for labour. They they had the option, of course, of doing the work themselves, mm. but most of them were not skilled farmers. They were ex-soldiers or sailors and quite uh, unskilled at farming. So they had the option of um, doing work themselves, but that wasn't attractive. They had the option of attracting the koi koi to, to work for them, but then they would have had to have paid uh, wages. So, um, so, 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 Prof, let me just yeah. ask, be, before we get there, what yeah. was behind the decision itself to, to settle some of the Dutch here permanently? Um. The, the decision was that once they, the company had to supply its passing vessels with meat and water, mm-hmm. but also with fresh produce like vegetables and, of course, feed the, the settlement um, as it was growing with, with wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically they, they wanted to establish an agricultural base and become self-sufficient. Okay. And, and that's why land was granted along, firstly, the Lisbiak River, which, of course, belonged to the Khoi Khoi. And as soon as the Khoi saw what was happening, they began to resist and, and fight. Um, and the, yeah, the company threw its weight behind the colonists. And, and, um, and I think, you know, there's a gradual, inevitable expansion of the colonial frontier taking away of land from the Khoi Khoi. And with the, the acquisition of land comes the need for labor because without labor, the land um, is pretty useless. Um, and so there were two sources of labor. There were either slaves, which were quite expensive, or there were Khoi Khoi, who were relatively cheap. Hmm. Um, I'll go to Colin before we continue the story. Who's calling from Cape Town? Hi, Colin. Hi, good afternoon, Pamela, and good afternoon, Prof. Hi. Um, two of my questions were already answered. I was going to talk about slavery, which goes back centuries. It wasn't only in Africa. It was all over the world, the Romans, and Egypt, and you, you name it. But what I wanted to ask, I read some, somewhere back, when, when slavery, they brought slaves from uh, Indonesia, India, and things like that, to South Africa, and when they started moving up to like uh, the sugar canes and plantations and things like that, I read somewhere that uh, if you were a slave for a period of 20 years, then they would give you a piece of land 
or you could go back. They will ship you back. And quite a few of them uh, decide to stay in South Africa. You know? I just want to know from Prof. is that true? Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. I'm think- listening on the radio. Thanks, Colin. Thanks. Thank you. I think you might be getting a bit confused between slaves and Indian indentured laborers who were brought out to work on the sugarcane fields of Natal. Mm. Um, and, and they were not slaves. They had to sign up to work for a certain period. And at the end of that period, you're right, they had an option to either go back or stay where they were. And um, of course, many chose to stay where they were, but, mm. but that's not uh, the same thing as slavery. Mm. KGM is calling from Cape Town. Hi, KGM. Good, good afternoon to me. Good afternoon to your guest and to my fellow listeners. Mm-hmm. I've got two, two uh, suggestive questions to, to your guest. When, in his view, did the enslavement of the Khoi Sand uh, end, if it ever ended? Mm-hmm. And what is his view? I'm asking as a descendant, I am a Khoisan. What is his view in terms of how the land, he puts it squarely and rightly so, says it was stolen? What is his view in um, what can be done to help um, return the land to the rightful owners if his belief is that the land was stolen from the Khoi, the Khoi Khoi or the Khoisan people. Femi, thanks, thanks for taking my call. Thanks, thanks, KGM. Um, Professor Penn, I mean, you were yes. you were going to get there to 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 how and where slavery took us um, from 1657. So perhaps let me allow you the opportunity to take us to what became officially the end of slavery. Okay, well, let, let me try and answer that at the same time as answering the yes. the, um, the listener's first question. Mm. Um, once again, he refers to Khoi enslavement and when did that end? Mm-hmm. Well, the Khoi, once again, to make this point, were never officially enslaved in that they couldn't be bought and sold. There was no market for them, although some children were taken as captives. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened in throughout the British Empire... In the year 1806, the slave trade was abolished. The slave trade, and not slavery itself, but the buying and selling of slaves throughout the British Empire was abolished in 1806. It became effective at the Cape in 1807. When that happened, everybody feared the colonial government, which by that stage was British, and the the slave-owning class. They feared there'd be a labor crisis with no more new slaves coming in. So it became even more important to control the labor of the Khoi Khoi and to make sure that the Khoi Khoi uh, worked for the colonists. So in 1808, the Calendar Code was passed. Sometimes it's known, and I'm using inverted commas here, it means the Hottentot Code. The Caledon Code or the Hottentot Code said that Khoi Khoi now need to carry a pass wherever they went, they would need to be able to prove that they were working on a farm for a farmer. And if they wanted to move around or change employment, they had to get special permission from the magistrate. So this was a tight form of labor control on the Koi. Not quite enslavement, but I think you can say it's um, unfree Mm. labor. Mm -hmm. 
And that was ended in 1828 by a piece of legislation called Ordinance 50. Ordinance 50 of 1828 gave all Cory and San within the colony rights as anybody else. In theory, they were now free to seek employment where they liked, free to purchase land. They had the same legal rights, were protected by law, etc., etc. That was 1828. Slaves had to wait until 1834 before the um, slavery itself was was abolished. And and yet there was a, a catch-22 to this. In 1834, slave, slavery was abolished, but slaves had to serve another four years of compulsory service with their masters as apprentices. So this is called the apprenticeship period. Mm-hmm. It's an extra four years of enslavement after the so-called abolition of slavery. So in effect, slaves only become free in 1838, and Khoisan laborers are liberated in 1828. All right. Prof, let me ask for a quick break. I'll be back with you, yeah. Paul, and we'll continue as we come back. Across South Africa, online and on radio. SAFM, let's talk. Pimelo, uh, this is James in Durban. Uh, would you please ask your professor there, um, where, you see the, the missionaries, you know, the first people who came with the Bible, you know, the word of God and everything. Um, can you please ask him um, whether, did they ha- had anything to do with um, slavery? I just want to know that part. Did they have any to, anything to do with slavery? Hi, SFM. Um, I just have a question. Uh, who's writing these books uh, that are talking about these things? Like we're referring to years like 1950 this, 1950 that, or 1650 that, or 1200s. Who was writing the books? and who is writing the books now. Um, this is to collaborate with the caller that was talking about uh, my ancestors, Marcus Garvey and them. Who's writing the books? So how do we know that this information is credible? Because if you can hear the story from the lion that was being hunted, it changes the narrative that you were given by the hunter. Professor Nigel Penn is a professor at the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town. Let me give you an opportunity to, to respond to the, the voice notes that came through. Prof? Right. Well, okay, I've got three big questions here. Yes, yeah. Um, um, let me deal with the first unanswered question, I think. Yes, before we went. What to do with, with stolen land? yes. Uh, how do we redress that? Mm-hmm. You know, I wish I knew the answer. There is no simple answer. Um, most of history is a story of injustice uh, and crimes that have been perpetrated by one set of people on another. How to redress all the wrongs of history, especially hundreds of years later, is very difficult. And land, of course, is a very, very um, emotional topic for, for many people. Remember back in, you know, 16, 
80 or 1700, there are far, far fewer people on the surface of um, South Africa than there are now. There are about, what, 57 million today. The Cape population in 1800 was about 20,000. So in other words, the population of UCT was the entire coverage of the Cape province. So obviously there there are far more people now alive covering the surface of Southern Africa than there were hundreds of years ago. It doesn't, it's not feasible to try and give everybody who is a descendant of anybody who was alive um, 200 years ago who had land taken from them. It's not feasible to divide the land um, amongst all claimants. Um, Plus, we've had industrialization since then. Most of us South Africans now live in towns and cities and not on the land. So whatever solution is found must deal with present realities. Um, Certainly there must be some form of redress and compensation. Uh, Quite what it is, though, um, I'm sure you'll appreciate that um, it's a difficult question. And I can't go into it now because it doesn't really have all that much to do with slavery. I could add, though, that um, there are a lot of people who want to be compensated for having been a a descendant of somebody who was enslaved. This is also very tricky. But just to the point about injustice, when slavery was abolished at the Cape, compensation was paid. Who do you think this compensation was paid to? to the slave owners for losing their property, not to the slaves for suffering what they did. Let me just quickly move on to the other question. Did missionaries have anything to do with slavery? The short answer is missionaries were against slavery. They were very pro-abolition. They worked extremely hard to try and get slavery abolished. In this country, missionaries only rarely began to arrive in 1798, after the Dutch had left the Cape. And these missionaries were missionaries uh, mainly from the London Missionary Society. They were fiercely anti-slavery. They lobbied hard to abolish slavery, and they were fiercely pro the rights of the Khoi Khoi. Now, obviously, these missionaries themselves were, in a sense, part of the colonial project because they were coming along telling people to reform their lives, become converted, to work the land in a certain way, to dress in a certain way. So I'm not saying that the missionaries aren't part of the colonial project, but I can answer emphatically that the missionary agitation was against slavery and that the movement for abolition was led by missionaries and humanitarians. And quickly, the the final question, who writes the books? Who writes the history books? Well, uh, (laughs) lots of people, different people write history books. Um, I write history books. You can write a history book. Um, History is very often based on evidence. Evidence is produced by uh, all sorts of different people. It has to be interrogated. It has to be contextualized. Of course, there are some lies, there are distortions. But the job of a good historian, like the job of a good judge, must be to critically sift evidence to discard what is false, unreliable, to contextualize things and to come come to some sort of judgment. And there's no end of writing history books, there's no end of debates about history, but we should all aspire, I suppose, to write evidence-based 
history um, and history that uh, stands up in the in, in the court, ultimately in the, the the long court of history. Paul, you calling from Cape Town? Hi. Morning, afternoon to you and your guests. I just want to say two interesting facts. They say many of the slaves from West Africa that went to the United States were sold by their own chiefs to slave traders, and then a country in North Africa, I think it's Mauritania, only abolished internal slavery in the 1990s. Thank you so much. Right. I'm, I mean, you're right there that Africans were complicit in the slave trade, for every, you know, for every buyer there was a seller, um, so that's true. And slavery, the institution of slavery, is still with us today. Uh, covert, surreptitious, illegitimate. But uh, some estimates are there are at least 20 million slaves alive and not well in the world today. So it's not quite over. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Nigel Penn. Unfortunately, we have to leave it here. We've completely run out of time. He's a professor at the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town discussing slavery in South Africa. It's two o'clock. Let's go to Utsila Saku for the latest in SABC News.